everybody, and welcome to an MLS Cup final review show live from, I guess we're recording this live, you're not hearing it live, from CenturyLink Stadium in Seattle, Washington. I am Taylor Rockwell. I'm joined by Joseph Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hey, Taylor. How are you doing? Doing very well, man. It's uh, pretty exciting. We're recording this in what was the, I think it maybe was the TUDN uh, broadcast booth. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but you can hear the, the literal Seahawks in the background. Uh, you can hear the people cleaning up the stadium. We're recording just after, or a little bit after, the uh, results. Seattle Sounders 3, Toronto FC 1. Joe, was this overall, not necessarily the game, but the results, was this what you expected, or did you think it would be maybe going into extra time, maybe we'd get penalties? What were you expecting heading into this? I think the result is is what I expected, and this is something that Brian Schmetzer talked a lot about this week, about the narrative of them being favorites um, and kind of how his team was built to deal with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. They'd come in against LAFC winning that match in the Western Conference final, not being favorites. But coming in against Toronto, a team that's without Josie Altidore, that's coming in having to play away against a big away crowd, a record-breaking crowd here at CenturyLink. I think I expected Toronto to, to kind of be the, the underdog here, mm-hmm. and ultimately that's how it turned out. Yeah, I would agree with that. That said, I think we were both a little bit surprised by the way things went in the first half, especially from like minute five or so to minute 25. It seemed like Toronto were really starting to get more of the ball, seemed to be very dominant. Seattle, a lot of their attacks were coming from long balls, from direct play, certainly trying to do the counterattack, but not with the numbers committed forward that would make that effective. Uh, so what do you think like caused Seattle those problems? Why were Toronto the better team in those opening minutes? I think some of that visual of Toronto being the decidedly better team compared to Seattle mm-hmm. has to do with how these two teams are set up, right? So with Greg Vanny, his team and his idea is to to control the ball, to move it from back to front, right. calculated in possession to have it be systematic how they're, how they're approaching possession. And Brian Smetzer's Seattle team is just not built that way. Mm-hmm. They're built to defend first and to attack second. And I think that had to do with a lot of what we were seeing in that 20-minute span, especially in the first half when we saw Toronto come out and control the game. Mm-hmm. Michael Bradley maybe didn't get on the ball a ton, but the way Toronto are built, he didn't really have to. Pozuelo still was able to find some space. The other midfielders were able to control the tempo a little bit as well. So all of those things combined with how Seattle approached the game mm-hmm. from that defensive perspective, I think played into what we saw where Toronto truly did have the majority of the ball. Yeah. And I, and I should add here that uh, I almost tweeted this out just to, like, cover us, uh, but whatever. We, we, can rep- we can recognize that we had this conversation and feel confident about it, but basically we both felt like at first, oh, Toronto have more of the ball, they seem a bit more dominant, they seem a bit more confident, but then sort of talking out at halftime, we felt like, well, actually, maybe Seattle are causing some more frustration than we realized. They're sitting deep, they've got the two banks of four, Toronto really struggling to break through. So if we talk about halftime, especially with hindsight being twenty twenty, having heard Greg Vanny talk about it, having heard Brian Schmetzer talk about what happened at halftime. Let's sort of go, like, fast forward to that moment, nil-nil at the half, and it seems like Toronto, for their part, happy for the most part with what's, with what's going on until we get to the final third, and that was where the kind of frustration started to boil over. Absolutely, yeah. Those were the comments that we heard after mm-hmm. this match was Greg Venny especially, not necessarily frustrated, but almost reflective on, yeah. on how his team could have, have made those fine margins you know, fall in their favor, right? It was, it was a lot of you know, talking about how Toronto had the ball in good spaces, moving the ball up the field. They did that efficiently, but then once they, they broke the threshold into the final third, they were less efficient. And that right. was Vanny's you know, sentiment after the game was how, how his team just missed that little, little bit on the final ball, the final action that, that could have put them over the top and actually gotten them a goal. Because they really, 
I mean, honestly, I think you and I were kind of right in what we were talking about, Taylor. They mm-hmm. didn't have these massive clear-cut chances. It wasn't as if they were, they were slaughtering Seattle. Yeah, yeah, they had probably the better run of play, mm-hmm. right? They, they were better in stretches, certainly. But really, Seattle were able to manage that space in their own defensive area and in the final third and, and maybe in the half the, the latter half of their own defensive half. Seattle did control some of that space fairly well. Yeah, yeah, and, and I would say uh, we talked to Jovan Jones, you and I did after the game. He made the point that, yes, uh, I think Toronto had 65% of possession at halftime, but as he said, possession doesn't win games. Goals win games. So we'll talk a little bit about how Seattle were able to get those goals. But I want to go back to what you were talking about with Toronto having the ball but not being able to do as much with it. And I think a big part of that was because they were trying to use uh, Pozuelo as a basically a false nine, that he would drop in a bit more. And I I think the goal there was to pull some of Seattle's center backs out to create sort of a ragged back line that could then be exploited. We, uh, we heard Kim Kihi talk about that, about how they were struggling a little bit at first with some of the movement from Toronto, but that they eventually got better with their marking. And I think that caused huge problems for Toronto because once they had, uh, they, Seattle, had numbers clogged in the middle, Toronto didn't really have anywhere else to go, and then they started to slow down, which is another thing we heard Greg Vanny talk about at length at the end of the game. 100%. Between Seattle's attention to Pozuelo forcing him to drop super deep. And I mean, not like deep between the center backs mm-hmm. deep, which he's done at times for Toronto this season, but deeper in the attacking half between Seattle's ability to force him to drop and their ability to kind of you know, limit Michael Bradley's mm-hmm. involvement in this game as well. We heard you know, Seattle's game plan after the match. We heard that it was to have Ladero on Bradley and to have him sort of not necessarily man marked out yeah. of the game, but to have him constantly watched by Lodero. And that's something that we saw Seattle do to LAFC as well. For large stretches of that game, Eduardo Atuesta was mm. limited because Lodero was constantly paying attention to him. And when it wasn't Lodero, it was Rui Diaz. So for Toronto, when you're two primary playmakers in you know, Alejandro Pozuelo and Michael Bradley, mm-hmm. when those two guys are being shown special attention by the defense, it's harder to create chances just naturally because of how their roster is built. When those two guys aren't able to have a massive impact on the game. You have to move the ball wide, which is not what Toronto want to do mm-hmm. because they don't have Josie Altidore in there to win balls in the air. And this is where we heard a lot more from uh, Greg Vanny at the end of the game. And credit to him for not, didn't throw anybody under the bus specifically, wasn't raging about how things didn't go their way, but definitely seemed frustrated with some of the individual performances or the individu- individuality of some of the attacks. That basically, Toronto, he felt um, that Seattle could, didn't have a good answer for their movement, didn't have a good answer for their uh, approach, but that essentially once Toronto got into the final third, their options ran out a little bit. I think that is because Seattle were very disciplined in the two banks of four, keeping numbers in the middle. And so instead of continuing to move the ball, continuing to cycle and try to kind of probe for opportunities, it became more about individual effort. And at that point, that's, in my mind, essentially what Seattle wanted is, yeah, we're happy for you to try to dribble through four of us. It's probably not going to work. If it does, then you deserve the score. But in this case, it did not work. That's definitely what Seattle were banking on. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were sequences in this game Based off of our view in the press box, there was a sequence on the near side where Aro just absolutely nutmegs. Yeah. You know, I don't even remember who the player was, but you know, he might as well just be laying there still. <laughs> it, was, it was filthy. But that individual moments gave Toronto confidence. Mm-hmm. But looking back on it now, I'm not sure it gave them a lot of you know, cohesiveness to yep. attack as a unit. And maybe that's what it takes to break down a team like this. You know, Christian Roldan told me after the game, it's hard to, it's hard to break down 11 yeah. players. You know, when you have every single person behind the ball, which wasn't Seattle's MO for the entire first half yeah. or, or for this entire game, but they had stretches where they were pinned deep, where Toronto had them back in their own half for you know, two, three, four mm-hmm. minutes at a time. Seattle hung in there, and they, they absorbed some of those individual moments from Toronto's attackers or, or fullbacks or you know, whoever it is. They absorbed that pressure and kind of dared Toronto, yeah, you can skill on us, mm-hmm. but 
until you move the ball and combine quickly, we're not too concerned. So we have a good idea of what Toronto were trying to do and maybe why that was ineffective in the first half. Similarly, we have a good idea of what Seattle were doing defensively. Let's talk about the opposite way. Why do you feel Seattle were sort of ineffective in their attacking approach? Uh, I know you were kind of paying special attention to Seattle's left side. You thought that could be very key to the game. Sounds like maybe Toronto also very focused on that left side of Seattle. Greg Vanny talked about it in a postgame. I asked him about that exact thing because Mm -hmm. Seattle so often this season have relied on their left side to progress attacks down the field. Just They have very good left-sided players, mm-hmm. and they lean into that 100% from the start of the year until now. That's been their you know, biggest offensive strategy when they have the ball in, in possession is to have Brad Smith, to have whoever the left-sided midfielder is in this game. It was Jordan Morris, at least for the first half, to have Brad Smith, Morris, and then you bring over Nico Lodero, and sometimes you bring over one of the midfielders central midfielders in that double pivot, often Christian Roldan, you bring all those guys over to one side and you try to play through the opposing defense, daring them to say, either you don't have enough people here and we're going to play through you, or you bring over enough people to go man-to-man with us and then we're going to switch it to the other side. Mm -hmm. Toronto came in with a clear understanding of that strategy and and they committed numbers over there, daring uh, daring Seattle, excuse me, to play down that side and ultimately... They really weren't. Seattle really wasn't able to find any effective moments on that side. Absolutely, because the thing that like a pattern of play that I kept seeing and was surprised by is that you'd see sort of Morris and uh, Brad Smith on that left side, maybe ten or fifteen yards apart, and Morris would step inside to open up space for Smith. And like three or four times in the first half, I'd see Smith sprint 10 yards and then kind of stop and be like, oh, no, never mind. They've got numbers here and drop off. And then Morris would have to drop in. And it didn't really have the kind of fluid effectiveness that we would have expected. And so I think when you limit that left-hand side, what ended up happening is if you're sitting in a 4-4-1-1, which effectively Seattle were, and then you have Nico Ladero as your 10, I think the idea would be, okay, he's there. He can kind of hold the ball up. He's crafty enough and tricky enough that he can then hold on long enough that either he plays in Rui Diaz or we can counterattack down the flanks and he can spread the ball wide. But then, as you said earlier, if simultaneously Ladero is tracking Michael Bradley and trying to limit what he can do, then you don't have him as this focal point of your attack. Instead, the focal point of your attack is also doing a defensive job. And so I think that's where we ended up seeing a lot of just balls into the channel, balls over the top for Rui Diaz. Seattle still get some chances. They have the great one. It's a great save. It could have put Seattle up in the first half. Uh, A good shot from Rui Diaz. I would say a better save from uh, Westberg. But those chances for Seattle seemed intermittent at best because of what Toronto were doing to limit their effectiveness. They were certainly few and far between Mm -hmm. in that first half. And I think a lot of that comes down to almost being conflicted from a mindset standpoint. Seattle are built to defend, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of their focus in the first half. Maybe they didn't do it. They didn't control and pressure the ball quite as Mm -hmm. much as they'd like to, but they were still focused on defending first in that first half. And then when they did get the ball, they weren't able to truly transition as effectively as they would have liked to. Um, against LEFC, they did a great job of that. They, were, they balanced both of those things very, very well, defending and transitioning into the attack. It's, it's hard to do that. Right? Yeah. And I think that's what we saw here tonight, was, or this afternoon, rather. It's, it's difficult to balance those things together. So when Seattle were defending deep, not only does that mean that there's a lot of ground for them mm-hmm. to cover in that transition, but it's also difficult to switch on, to switch right. from defense to offense, to say, okay, we have the ball. We need to play through some counterpress because that's something Toronto did in this first half especially. Mm-hmm. They, they pressed the ball after they lost it. And for Seattle, they were a little bit wasteful at times with how they, with how they possessed. They weren't as careful with the ball moving out of that counterpressure, which allowed Toronto to continue to pin them deep, exactly. ultimately resulting in some wasted chances yeah. or lack of chances. And that was another thing we heard from Brian Schmetzer in the post-match interview, that essentially we defended, we defended, we defended, and then we were pretty sloppy. We gave the ball away, and they came right back at us. So that's where I think when we get to halftime and it's nil-nil, you see some adjustments. For Toronto, I think it was more about 
I'm going to assume the halftime talk was play the ball faster, stop holding on to it, stop trying individual stuff, but keep the ball moving. I don't think they did as well with that one in the second half. What do you think the adjustments were for Seattle coming out? Seattle, I think there were, there were two of these sorts of adjustments. The first one that was visibly obvious to us and you know, everyone else who was watching this match it was Jordan Morris and uh, Jovan Jones switched wings. Right. So the two midfielders in the 4-4-2 or the 4-2-3-1 when they had the ball swap sides. So Morris headed over from the left side over to the right side and Jovan Jones from right to left. And I, I, some of the, the reasoning behind that, as we understand it, was to have Morris a little bit higher yep. on that right side and, and Jovan Jones as well to get those guys up the field a little bit more and to have more of an established attacking presence so that they weren't just trying to shift so quickly back and forth. They actually had some numbers forward to work with Rui Diaz and mm-hmm. to work with Nico Lodero to hopefully create some sustained attacks. Right, because I think the idea being that they know they're not going to be able to just suddenly go all out at Toronto and cause them huge problems, so you don't want to throw away the entire game plan. But if you get those numbers forward, then if, even if you're going to keep Brad Smith back a little bit more, okay, that's fine. But if we have at least three in the attack, Rudy Diaz now has someone to play off of. He can just try to flick it on and maybe he's got a runner or he can drop it into Ladero. But just by having numbers higher up, if you do win the ball or if you're able to retain the ball, now you're starting with possession at midfield as opposed to in your own 18. So that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, I, I completely agree with all that. That's 100% what the first major change was mm-hmm. from Seattle. Then they came out, and we didn't really learn this until after the match, but you know, we saw Victor Rodriguez yep. warming up on the sideline, prepared to come into the game right before Seattle scored their goal through, through Kevin Leardam on that, the right side of the mm-hmm. box. Whether that's a Leardam goal or an own goal, we yeah. can have a discussion about another time. <laughs> Maybe you're a little favorable Seattle scorekeeping on Maybe. that one. But Maybe. No, we, we learned after the match that Rodriguez was going to come in and, and potentially play a little bit of a different role than we'd expect him to. Mm-hmm. They were, the, Brian Schmetzer was leaning towards adjusting that shape a little bit, away yep. from his you know, tried-and-true 4-2-3-1 in possession to more of a 4-4-2 diamond. And we didn't, we didn't know exactly at the time that that was going to be the instruction, but it seemed like having Rodriguez enter the game was going to trigger that movement and was going to trigger a little bit of a shift in how they were going to possess. Yeah, because I think... Uh, like. If you have those front three higher up the field, that's great. But what I think they found was that it was still then leaving them a bit more isolated than he wanted. So if you change that shape, now at least you've got more numbers through the middle, but you can still stay a bit higher. And you've, I think the, what we thought was going to happen was that it was going to be Rui Diaz stays high. Jordan Morris joins him as a front two. Then we've got Rodriguez coming in as the number 10. Ladero and uh, Roldan as your more like number eights. And then sitting in would be Gustav Svensson. That way you've got sort of now you've really clogged the middle. If you go long to Rui Diaz, he can knock it back. You've got numbers there but then you can still have advancing fullbacks. We think that was the plan, but it didn't end up needing to be the case because we get the first goal. We can talk about that one in a moment. But first, let's talk about today's sponsor, our friends over at Talisman Caps. They are purveyors of high-end, quality-made caps and gear to help you support the club you love. They're also running a $1,000 gift card giveaway now through November 22nd. There will be 10 winners. Each will receive a $100 Talisman & Co. gift card. Listeners can sign up on their website and earn extra points for following Talisman on social media. That'd be Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, Tweeting about the competition, taking their poll to let them know who you cheer for. So you can uh, check out uh, that gift card giveaway at Talisman & Co. But Joe, you've been checking out the Talisman website. You've been looking at some of the caps they've got. You've got the screen open. What has appealed to you? 
what really stands out to me about these is how clean the designs are, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they're just extremely sharp-looking hats here. One of my favorites is is for Arsenal fans out there. There's a, a fantastic-looking yellow Arsenal hat with, with just the cannon mm-hmm. on it. That almost minimalistic design. Yep. Things might be a little bit dreary with Unai Emery right now, <laughs> but uh, you can find some joy in this hat, right? It's, yeah. it's bright, it's cheery, and it's clean. Yeah. It's, uh, that's what it, one of the things I like the most about it, is that instead of it just saying, like, I like Chelsea, or having the Chelsea logo, which then you've got to you know buy from the Chelsea official website, it's got to be shipped over the over the ocean. Nobody wants that. Instead, you've got little like like references to the to the clubs you like. So you've got the the Liverbird. You've got the the Lion for Chelsea. You've got the Cannon for Arsenal. We don't need to talk about Man United because nobody wants to. Uh, but you've got all of those kind of simplified designs that look very clean. I totally take your point. Now, are you are you going to invest in a talisman cap? I mean, at this point, I think I kind of have to. I can't bear to probably wear an Arsenal hat. Uh-huh. Uh, hopefully that doesn't make too many people upset. But, yeah, at this point, it's almost like I have no other choice, right? These are just extremely clean. <laughs> um, they've also just released a new uh, kit pattern collection of caps inspired by vintage Liverpool, Man United, and Arsenal jerseys. So there's, like, the blue sort of chevron pattern from the early 90s from Man United, the bruised banana gunner's hat, which has got the yellow and the black. It's a solid look. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but that's probably the one I like the most. There's also the Liverpool candy red hat. So if you want to check those out or any of their other offerings, they've got accessories. They've got cell phone uh, holders. They've got uh, nice uh, coffee cups. We've talked about those previously. They've got the vintage vault with many, many nicely curated uh, jerseys from throughout history. Um, you can get 10% off a minimum purchase of $35 using the promo code TOTALSOCCER10. So go to Talisman & Co. right now, and when you get ready to check out, use uh, the promo code TOTALSOCCER10 to get 10% off with a minimum purchase of $35. I'll put a link to Talisman & Co in today's show notes, but we thank them very much for sponsoring today's show. We thank very much uh, Kelvin Leardam for, I guess, getting a goal that sort of changed the entire narrative of the game. Yeah, that, I mean, it was really, really close, right? Was it on target? Was it a cross? Was yeah. it a shot? Uh, was it a shot? We don't really know. <laughs> um, and he's not going to tell us one or the other, right? I, I think he said... I think he said in the post-match, like, oh, no, it was definitely a shot. I mean, I just put my head down and I went for it. Uh, so maybe we'll take him at his word. But he said in the moment it wasn't a planned thing. It wasn't a I've been told to get forward and, and be much more attacking. It was just sort of there's space there. I'm going to try to take advantage of it. And he did just that. On, on first watch, kind of right in line with that, mm-hmm. it almost seemed like Seattle just sort of happened into yeah. this goal, uh, that it was still kind of against the run of play. Toronto maybe still had some leftover momentum from that mm-hmm. first half from just the sheer amount of time that they were to control the ball. Um, but then, I mean, this really was a nice bit of build-up from yes. Seattle on this goal. It was clean, and I think that kind of you know sh- shines some favorable light on Seattle's adjustments at halftime, trying to be a little bit more cohesive into the attack, trying to control the ball a little bit more, not all the time, but when they had their chances to have the ball to actually keep it and make meaningful things happen. Yeah, with it. and Brian Schmetzer said like we needed to be a bit more composed in our possession and what we were doing, and I think this is a great example of how you have to have the tenacity to be defensive and win the balls when you can, but then once you retain the, the ball, or once you get the ball back, that's when you can slow it down and be smart, because it's a good, aggressive win from Christian Roldan. He takes it off of uh, Jonathan Osorio, and then it's, this is where we saw Seattle just be a little bit smarter. Instead of going long, instead of going direct, or maybe just like one individual run, run it was a really nice passing sequence brad smith gets the ball he plays it to joven jones joven jones goes back to brad smith then he finds nico ladero who's drifted to the wing uh, to the far touch line and because of that space is now opened up joven jones goes on a run michael bradley doesn't really track him maybe as tightly as he should but this is all nice sequences of possession tight control and i think it really really caught toronto uh 
asleep in some ways because it's not what they had done in the first half. So suddenly there's passing and there's moving off the ball. And I think that's partially to explain why Michael Bradley isn't as tight on Jovan Jones, why you don't have as much pressure on Nico Ladero, because he's on the touchline of a miscontrol, even like a tiny miscontrol, and he's going to put that ball out of bounds for a throw-in for Toronto. But because he doesn't have that immediate pressure on him, he's able to find that space down the line for Jovan Jones. That sequence definitely speaks to how important Nico Lodero is to mm-hmm. this team, right? I mean, that's, that's not a new narrative. That's not a new thought. But there were several moments in this game, particularly in the second half, where you could just see how absolutely critical he is to yeah. Seattle's attack. He wasn't able to have a lot of those chances to impact the game in the first half. But a sequence like this where he, he essentially makes this play possible yeah. with that close control, with the vision, with the movement to have this sequence end up with the ball on Kevin Leardam's foot yeah. on the right side of the box and, you know, the ball eventually goes in the net, but that doesn't happen without Lodero's movement and involvement on, the, on that left side. Yeah, and, and it should be noted, Raul Ro, Ruiz Diaz also involved in this one because Jones drops the ball to Ruiz Diaz. Ruiz Diaz spots Leardam, uh, who has made that kind of advancing run, and I think the reason why that run is on, again, Leardam said, no one told me to get forward, I just saw, hey, there's tons of space. Like, it's because I think Toronto are finally caught in a situation when they've got to kind of just transition backwards. Everyone's trying to, like, fill gaps where they can, and so you don't have the, maybe, defensive discipline you need, the defensive discipline we saw from Seattle and so you end up with who was, who was it who ended up uh, defending Leardam in this one? Uh, Nicholas Benazé the left winger for Toronto and when your left winger is like defending eight yards from his own goal that's not really what you ha- want to have happen and that's exemplified by what actually does happen on this goal and it's such a great look you know a little bit of behind the scenes look at how Brian Schmetzer likes to build his rosters. Mm-hmm. He mentioned in his post-match press conference, and this is one of my favorite things, how he likes to have players who are tactically mm-hmm. adaptable, that can think, think through these moments as they're happening and recognize space and recognize when to yeah. move and when not to move. And I think Leardam's run in this is a great example of that, right? It's not something that was pre-planned. You no. know, he's really not even the fullback that tends to go forward as much. Typically, that's Brad Smith on the mm-hmm. left side. But Leardam charges into space because he sees it. He sees that he has that matchup that he thinks he can take advantage of. And that speaks to how Seattle have built their roster. They might not do extremely innovative tactical things. Like mm-hmm. Brian Schmetzer never made any claims to be Pep Guardiola and how he you know, coaches his team and how he sets them up. But when you have players who are smart and who are good on the ball and can make things happen as a group and sort of adapt over the course of the match, that's huge. And mm-hmm. that played a huge part in Seattle's victory in this game. Absolutely. And I think you've got to be bold. Like That is a very key observation and key point to this one. And it extends to Schmetzer. I'll talk about that one in a minute. But here with Leerdam... It, you would not like. You would not have judged him for trying to smash that ball first time. You would not have judged him for like holding it up and waiting and laying it off, or trying to like go with a low driven ball across the top of the box. Instead, I think he has the wherewithal to think. Well, what happens if I just try a little bit of skill on Benazé? And what happens? Benazé falls over. Now there's a shooting opportunity for Leardam. Yes, it takes a fortunate deflection or two. I'm still not sure if it was going on target, but it doesn't really matter because in the end, it goes in the back of the net off the deflection from I believe Justin Morrow. That was the big one that put it in there. But it's him sort of taking that opportunity and deciding I'm going to make something happen. It's the cliche, but like you've got to find a way to win. You've got to take the game by the scruff of the neck. I would say Leardam does that. But I also think Schmetzer, uh, in the wake of this goal, and even maybe before that, is also being bold. Uh, because we had a lot of people very confused, a lot of Seattle fans very confused by the decision to bring on Rodriguez and take off Brad Smith, who's been a key performer for Seattle in these playoffs in this regular season, but also a key left back for them. And to take off your left back, your starting left back, drop Joven Jones in, it's a bold decision, and that he was going to do it before the goal with the adjustments we talked about, and that he sticks with it after the goal is very revealing to me because I think it's Schmetzer there saying, all right, let's go for this now because now it seems like we've got the opportunity. Toronto seemed a little bit rattled. Let's make something happen. That's such a huge decision that Schmetzer, that Schmetzer made yep. on that, you know, that decision to keep 
the Rodriguez sub and to, to really go for it. That's mm. such an underrated move that ended up playing a huge factor in, in the final result of this match, right? Instead of sitting back and, and holding on to that 1-0 lead with everything they had, Seattle continued to push. They brought Rodriguez on, who is probably the third or fourth most attacking, mm-hmm. talented player that they have on this roster. They have a great core. Rodriguez can play anywhere across the front three. He's dynamic on the ball. He's good. He's clean. He makes these movements happen in the final third. Bringing on a guy like that who does want to pull strings in the attack is a clear signal that you're not just going to sit back and try to manage the game and control space in your own half, that you're going to push forward and make things happen with the ball in the attacking half. And that's a huge decision, Mm -hmm. and it it really speaks to how Brian Schmetzer went for it and did kind of, as you mentioned, Taylor, grab the game by the scruff of the neck and really make things happen, not just let them happen or hope that they would, but take things on the front foot and really move forward and try to make those things happen. Yeah, and we see that in the second goal because, again, I think part of the narrative of this game is Seattle in the first half, sitting deep, then as they make the adjustments in the beginning of the second half, you see them more around midfield, and then after this goal, maybe even in the lead-up to the goal, but then from then on, it's much more aggressive in Toronto's defensive third, putting them under pressure, and the second goal, in my opinion, really comes about from a good bit of counter-pressing that Toronto win that ball back, Seattle right on them right away, credit to Gustav Svensson for a big, powerful uh, tackle, and now again, Toronto are kind of scrambling because they thought they had time, they thought they'd have space, and instead, they're now dispossessed, and they have numbers uh, not where they need to be. And this is, you know, we talked about it from the first half, how Seattle struggled to combine defending with mm-hmm. attacking a little bit. This is a great example of that, where they do it so well. Svensson goes in and wins the ball. He makes this great tackle, closing down a lot of space yep. to win the ball quickly with a little bit of counterpress, you know, with a little bit of counterpressing from Seattle. Because and I would jump in just to say real fast, I think Marky Delgado, who Svensson wins the ball off, had no idea. Like, I think he clearly expected, like, okay, Given the way this game has gone, I've got time to turn. Maybe he doesn't think it this slowly, but I think he thinks, like, I've got time to turn. No one's going to be there. And Svensson really is 10 yards away when I think uh, Delgado checks and sees, like, how much time he has. And by the time he turns, Svensson is right there with that tackle, and it just speaks to the aggressiveness of Seattle in that moment. He's right on him. Svensson's right on Delgado in the blink of an eye. And that allows them to transition from defense to attack in a way that we really didn't see them do in the first half. It allowed them to stay on the front foot, not to defend reactively, but to defend uh, higher up the field actively to apply pressure to the ball and then allow that pressure to this organized Toronto shape, their defensive shape, and then play quick passes in the final third or, or right around the edge of the box mm. that eventually allowed Victor Rodriguez to score. Yeah, and, and again, it's similar to the first goal. It's uh, Seattle being really aggressive in their defensive approach, winning that ball back, but then rather than just like, okay, now turn and shoot and let's make something, you see them be not necessarily slow because it's a quick passing sequence that leads to this goal, but it's more so direct in their passing but like still poised on the ball and picking their spots it's it's I think what Svensson winning it back goes to Rodriguez back to Svensson and then it's a nice little ball into Nico Ladero and this is the the reason why this goal is why I voted for Nico Ladero for MVP Uh, Rodriguez obviously wins it but just these little passes this little bit of vision from Ladero that we saw especially in the second half as Seattle grew more into the game but here it's a good ball in but it's just such a lovely little like one-time flick pass into space that Rodriguez is able to run onto and finish first time. It's a great setup by Ladero, and again, it's him being involved in a tight little amount of space, but still finding a way to navigate that space expertly. It's a lovely goal, and it's it's a perfect look at why Seattle were so mm-hmm. fun at the beginning of this Major League Soccer season. They had Ladero and Rodriguez combining a lot. It was originally this season, at least a lot of the time, it was Rodriguez on the left side with Seattle's left-sided overloads and Jordan Morris on the right side mm-hmm. for them to switch the ball over to Morris in space when those left-sided overloads didn't allow Brad Smith 
to push forward from left back and get the ball on the left wing. These sequences were what made Seattle so much fun, and they yeah. got back to their roots here really on this goal with creative combination play from Lodero, from Rodriguez. Rui Diaz is even hanging out there. doesn't even have to get involved. I mean, he's probably occupying some defenders with his own movement because you can't forget about Rui Diaz. Yeah. But those two players, Lodero and Rodriguez, get on the ball, and they truly can. Another cliche, but they can make magic happen in yeah. the final third. And it's fun to watch, right? It's, it's why Seattle were fun at the beginning. Mm-hmm. They came full circle, got it back to that again at the end of the season, and again, looking towards next season, that's scary, right? Yep. If you're in opposing defense, you know, Toronto struggled to contain it, clearly in these moments. Coming into a full season next year with, hopefully, a, for Seattle, a healthy Victor Rodriguez and Lodera coming back mm-hmm. with another year, don't know exactly what his future plans are as far as staying in the league or, or maybe looking to return to South America or somewhere else. But if Seattle returns this attacking core next mm-hmm. season, outside of maybe LAFC, maybe Atlanta, that's filthy, right? Yeah. That's just absolutely absurdly talented, and, and we've seen in this game why they can be so dangerous. When they, when they first brought Raul Rui Diaz in, I thought like that he has the potential to be the, one of the best strikers in the league. Now, that was a bit hyperbolic because obviously Zlatan, Carlos Vela, uh, Jose Martinez, there's lots of good strikers in this league. But just what we've seen Rui, Rui Diaz do in the past for club and country... I thought this is going to be a huge impact signing for them, and I think we've seen that borne out over the course of the season, but we even sort of see it borne out in the third goal because it, it is then Seattle sitting in a little bit more. It's in the 90th minute. Now they've dropped in. They've taken off some of their key performers to give them a little bit of an ovation to let the crowd celebrate. Um, and here, though, it's just sort of Raul Rui Diaz deciding, I'm going to make something happen. Gustav Svensson spots that maybe there's an opportunity because it's uh, Mavinga is the only one deep for Toronto, and he's kind of left of center. Raul Rui Diaz, right of center. So it's a big boomed ball over the top for Svensson. But Mavinga still has position. And it's Rui Diaz having the physicality and the tenacity to just kind of hassle a little bit without fouling. And that's a key thing. There's no clip. There's no shoving. There's no jersey pulling. It's just hassling to the point where Mavinga pretty clearly panics and just tries to shepherd. And then at one point, it's like Rui Diaz fakes left. Mavinga covers there. Rui Diaz goes back right. Mavinga goes that way. And then it's just a quick little like dummy, dummy, dummy. And Rui Diaz gets uh, right side of him. But then you see the composure and the calmness for the finish. And it's that sort of individuality of uh, of the moment that also makes Rui Diaz and this Seattle attack uh, so special. And this sequence, this moment, this goal is a really funny one to me because Mavinga, not only is he a quality player, mm-hmm. um, he's probably Toronto's best center back. Even, you know, Omar Gonzalez inconsistent. Laurent Simon, very inconsistent. Mm-hmm. He's the best player, at least in my mind, of those three. But you just saw how scary Rui Diaz is to defend against, especially in space. Against LAFC, he was huge in transition. He often was playing mm-hmm. sort of the facilitator point guard role instead of Lodero against uh, LASC just because he's so good on the ball. He's so good at moving forward into space to either track the ball and bring it down from a long ball like we saw from Svensson or with the ball at his feet. And we saw Mavinga just sort of lose it. He almost panicked, exactly yeah. like you said. Rui Diaz, we were just down in the locker room, isn't the biggest guy. No, he's, he's not. not like you wouldn't meet him and necessarily think that, okay, this guy is you know, a huge target striker. But he's so good on the ball. He's so good with his movement. And he's shifty. He's clever. And, and again, he's a good facilitator as well. We saw on one of the, the earlier goals him put the ball out wide for uh, Leerdam. Mm-hmm. He, he's good in so many different ways. And that allows Seattle to be flexible when they get the ball, especially because they're not always focused on the attack. Sure, it's something that they talk about in training. And it's something that they work on because you have to. But when a lot of the time you're a little bit of a defensive first team, mm-hmm. 
having a striker who's versatile and can create in a lot of different ways is huge. Yeah, and and I think it also is about, to your point about versatility, it's the adaptability that we saw from Seattle that was so important in this game because talking to Brad Smith after the game, talking to Jovan Jones after the game, neither one knew that substitution was coming. Jovan Jones, I think, told us, like, no, I thought it might have been me. I, I thought it was going to be my number that came up. So then when I went back to left back, I was like, okay, that's fine. Brad Smith, I think he said, like, oh, I picked up a knock in the first half. It might have been that, but I'm also not sure if they even knew I got injured in the first half. But he, again, I think was willing to make way. And I do think it was the correct decision because we didn't see him as involved. But I think that sort of ability to just on the fly change it up and not know it's coming but still be able to function in a system is what made the difference for Seattle. We should still probably talk about Toronto's goal uh, because they did pull one back. And while it is definitely a consolation goal, I actually – I don't mean for this to be – quite so cliche I apologize but like it probably won't be much consolation to Greg Vanny because I would argue this goal is essentially what he was really asking Toronto to do the entire game was just be decisive get the ball in the box make something happen and that's how this goal comes about and that's Pozuelo right that's Pozuelo who plays a huge part in this one the ball comes down off of a of a header from uh, Roman Torres who sort of just gets it anywhere outside the box he just hits it away the ball falls to Pozuelo he beats a Seattle defender he beats him and plays the ball into the box for Mm -hmm. Josie out the door it's quick it's fast it's you know it's these movements that we didn't see a lot of Mm -hmm. in the first half and even from Toronto especially after they went down one nil two nil they didn't do a whole lot of these quick decisive attacking actions and sure something needs to be said about Josie Altidore's involvement here because Pozuelo makes a move on the wing and he crosses it in, and that's mm-hmm. not something they had the luxury of doing in the first half because, you know, you can try to cross a ball into Endo or to Benize or to Pozuelo or any of these players. They're not aerial threats, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a luxury for Seattle to, to sort of say, you can cross the ball, and if you want to, like, you can be decisive in wide areas. That's fine. We'll allow you to do that because we're not afraid of you aerially. So Josie Altador coming in changes that scope a yep. little bit. But it's too late, right? It's too mm-hmm. late. Greg Vanny, I think, would agree with that. It's too late. These things happen after the game is over. You know, Josie Altador comes in earlier on in the second half. He comes in, and he doesn't make an impact really mm-hmm. until, that, until that play. He didn't establish himself You in had the game. to remind me he was on the field. I'll put, I'll put that one out there. That You're like, oh, Josie's on the field. I was like, wait, oh, yeah, he is. Like, I just kind of forgot he was out there. He's come in, exactly. He's come in in the 68th minute, and more than 20 minutes later is sort of, sure, we could be missing one or two minor things, yeah. but that's his real first major impact. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's a goal. It's a great goal. It's a well-placed header that yeah. beats Stefan Fry. Absolutely. But it's too little too late for Toronto, and I think that ties in with the fact that throughout the match they were a little bit, I don't want to say wasteful in how they created chances, but they weren't as clean and concise with it as they should have been. It's strange because like, uh, I think Bobby Warshaw writing for MLS Soccer said like uh, Toronto's wastefulness uh, allows Seattle to like, put them to the sword or something like that. Um, and, I would, and I would kind of disagree, having not even read the article, because I don't think it was that Toronto had these golden opportunities that they just didn't take advantage of, but I would instead say they had these half chances that could have been full chances. And even in the lead-up to this goal, I think it's Larea gets the ball, he's at the top of the box, he's got options left and right, he could have kept the ball moving, and instead he tries to dribble in and do some slaloming runs into three Seattle defenders who just poke the ball away. And then it ends up, or I guess they clear the ball away. That's when they're able to kind of recollect and Pozuelo gets on the ball. But you see right there that it's like uh, Toronto attackers being a bit ponderous, being a bit overly elaborate, trying too much, and not just doing the simple stuff. Contrast that with Pozuelo. Settles the ball, realizes that he has Kim Kihi at a disadvantage, that he can kind of get past him with one touch. He does just that. Then it's a great ball into the box. It's a driven ball in for Josie Altador. It's a great directional header, as you said. But it's that sort of directness in the final third that I think Toronto were entirely lacking until essentially the 93rd minute. And it's 
we could be living in another reality where they've mm-hmm. been a little bit faster, a little yep. bit sharper with the ball. Absolutely. And completely come out and not necessarily dominated, but controlled the match and actually mm-hmm. scored goals and taken consistent shots on goal. It took them most of the way through the second half. It took Toronto to actually get another shot on target after the first half. It took mm-hmm. them a large stretches of that second 45 minutes to really make meaningful attacking action, actions happen. And if they'd been a little bit quicker, a little bit sharper, I mean, I think we could absolutely be recording this. And, and Toronto yeah. came and they won 2 0, 3 0, 3 1, whatever mm-hmm. it is. It wouldn't, it's not hard to view this as, it's not hard to come in and think about an alternate reality where Toronto truly were the better team and actually controlled the game from start to finish. Yeah, and I think, I think it was Christian Roldan who said, like, if this game's played in Toronto, I'm not sure we win it because it is about those little breaks. It is about getting those little bounces when you need them to happen. Toronto, for the first goal, complaining that I think Osorio was fouled, the foul not given, but then you've got, like, Leardam with the cut and the shot that's a double deflection. That's a pretty fortunate bounce. But in the end, Seattle are then able to take advantage. Seattle are now your 2019 MLS. Cup champions. Joe, you have been uh, obviously very heavily involved following these playoffs, uh, or all playoffs all season. Uh, you've talked a, a lot about a lot of teams, a lot of moments on this show. Did this result sort of vibe with the playoffs as a whole for you? Absolutely. With the single elimination format change especially, there's been a lot of talk about that mm-hmm. obviously, but all those games leading up that were hectic, that were chaotic, a lot of crazy results, extra time, goals in extra time yep. from Toronto in that first round game against DC. Four goals in the first period of extra time. LAFC goes down. All these things that weren't necessarily mm-hmm. expected. Toronto comes into Atlanta, upsets them, come back. You know, they come back in that game. Honestly, probably didn't deserve to win, but they got it done somehow. And ultimately, that's, that's a little bit what Seattle did in this match. The margins were fine. Every little factor played into it. Brian Schmetzer, a little bit teary-eyed, talking about yeah, what the was. home fans meant to him and, and what being in the city of Seattle and winning this game here. All of these factors, these little things that can you know, sway a game one way or the other, those absolutely played a part in this match. And, and like I said before, if this game was in Toronto, I didn't say that, someone else did. If this mm-hmm. game was in Toronto, if things had gone just a tiny bit differently, a half second less on the ball for Toronto, uh, a half second slower for Seattle with those, some of those combinations that led to goals in the second half, any of those things, if any of those things had gone Toronto's way instead of Seattle's, it's a totally different game. And that speaks to the playoffs as a whole, right? Yeah. I would agree with that. And in, in terms of this game, uh, as I said, I think I voted for Nico, Nico Ladero. We had to cast our MVP ballots, I think, before the third goal. Um, who were these standout performers for you? If not necessarily the MVP, but who were some of the ones that you thought really had a solid game or even just impressed you in individual moments? One of them is definitely uh, Victor Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. We talked about him already. Um, I was kind of advocating for him, not necessarily publicly, but at least in my head. This sounds great to say now <laughs> that, he, that he came out and actually won MVP in this match. But in my head, I can't remember if I you tweeted it or not. You knew the whole time. I knew the whole time. <laughs> Rodriguez comes in. You know, I was hoping at some point that he would start a little bit over Jovan Jones just because I think he brings more yeah. in the attack. He's not necessarily as active defensively, so it's a give and take there, obviously. But Victor Rodriguez was huge coming in off the bench. He settled into that role in the playoffs. He got healthy, came back after his injury, worked his way back in training, started to get fit. Wasn't able to make the jump into the starting lineup, or Brian Schmetzer wasn't willing to change what had been working. But he comes in, and he makes a huge impact off the bench. So Victor Rodriguez is definitely one for me. And then another one, we already talked about it a little bit, is Rui Diaz. It's an unbelievable attacking quartet that Seattle have, essentially, when it's Rui Diaz and Rodriguez and Morris and Lodero. You could pick any one of those mm-hmm. guys, right? But Rui Diaz, he, he scores the, the game-killing goal, essentially. And that's exactly what he does. He reminds me yep. a little bit of Joseph Martinez at times mm-hmm. with how he moves, how he 
has sort of a low center of gravity, but it's all, everything he does is very powerful and strong, both off the ball with his movements, it's forceful, and with the ball at his feet, with his finishing and with his composure. Those two guys, in addition to Lodero, who made a lot of things yep. happen late in the second half, those guys were huge for Seattle, and they wouldn't have won this game without him. And before uh, Rodriguez gets that second goal... When I'm contemplating who I'm going to vote for, no disrespect to Leardam, but that deflection really factored into the goal. The only other one that I, I kind of considered, and we haven't said his name at all, which again is kind of telling, is Stefan Fry. Uh, and I do think in the first half he has a couple saves, uh, but the big one, he gets down low, he gets the big left paw to it and turns the ball out, but he doesn't turn it back into pressure, he turns it away from goal. And that save really was massive because, as we said, Toronto had the better uh, share of the possession, had the better share of the chances, I think three shots to two at halftime. If that ball goes goes in it's a completely different story and it is near the end of the first half uh, and so that could have really changed things a lot so Stefan Fry with a big save there could potentially have changed this entire game and it makes you wonder right we talked about these fine margins we talked about Toronto could have come out of this game mm-hmm. with a win pretty easily yep. I mean just if these little factors have changed that's one of them right that Fry save if he doesn't extend that palm if he doesn't get down there and block that shot Toronto scored they go up one nil they're riding the momentum higher. You know, they may have had some momentum heading into halftime anyway, but they actually have genuine momentum that is tangible on the scoreboard. Maybe they come in and they're like, oh, now we can play as a team. We see the results when we play quickly and when we move mm-hmm. the ball side to side, forward into the box, and create shots. But that shot didn't go in, and yep. it didn't turn out that way for Seattle. And it's, you know, soccer's a cruel game, right? It's a cruel sport. If those little moments had gone differently, if Fry hadn't made that save... You know, it's a huge play. Yep. And Toronto, you know, looked completely different. Maybe the scoreboard looks different. There we are. Uh, a couple more questions. I don't want to take up too much time, although I am still very much enjoying this view. Uh, hopefully, listeners are still enjoying uh, the seagulls in the background. You don't think they're enjoying the view, too? Uh, probably not. Probably not so much. Uh, they should be, but they're not, because they're selfish. Uh, no. Uh, and uh, Toronto fans, I'm sure, are already pretty bummed out. They might want to earmuff it for this question. It is a, it is a genuine question of ignorance, because I have not tr- watched Toronto nearly as much, as often, as vigorous as I'm guessing you have this season. But in my mind, you've got a Michael Bradley a year older, Josie Alcador, lots of injuries this season. It is kind of a consistent narrative, uh, even though he tries to play through it and, and I think uh, is admirable for trying to get on the field and try to make something happen tonight. You have Omar Gonzalez as like a key center back. I guess my question for you is, is this a Toronto team that you expect to be back competing next season? If not in MLS Cup, then making those playoffs? Or do you think we're going to see Toronto needing a rebuild, needing to freshen up in a lot of different spots? I don't think they need a rebuild necessarily. I think right now with the way the roster is constructed, even heading into next year, where there, there will be some changes, mm-hmm. right? That's just the way off-seasons work in this league. There will be changes, but even with a few tweaks here and there, they still have a good enough squad, especially in the Eastern Conference, where I think once you get past Atlanta, New York City, maybe the Philadelphia Union at this mm-hmm. point, who have sort of established themselves as more consistent contenders, although NYCFC now without Dome Torrent, we don't know exactly how they're going to look next season either. Mm-hmm. That's another point in favor of Toronto making the playoffs. Whether or not that bar is high enough, whether or not that's a good enough season for Greg Vanny and Toronto just making the playoffs, kind of going from there, it's, it's probably not mm-hmm. a strong enough campaign for have, to have that as kind of the bar. Um, but I think they still have talent, right? They have Pozuelo, who's genuinely seeing him. This is my first time mm-hmm. live and in person watching him. He's so clean on the wall. He's, <laughs> he moves really well. Seeing him, it's, it's one of my biggest regrets. Obviously, I had no control over this, but getting to see him in this postseason with Altidore ahead of him, mm-hmm. up top, seeing how those two combine in postseason matches... That's huge, right? Yep. And so whether or not Josie gets fit, whether or not he's back next season, all these little questions we have, and we won't know until mm-hmm. you know, a few weeks from now or months from now even. 
But Pozuelo's such a huge attacking piece for them. And then the midfield is solid, right? Michael Bradley is, a, is, is a still a solid player, right? He has his limitations. Those have been well-documented. We don't need to get into that. Hmm. But Bradley... Again, I'm not actually sure what his contract status is for next season because I know he had the option if they, yep. if they won this game. So I think he likes Toronto. I think he likes spending time there. So if he's back next season, he's still a serviceable player. Then you have the other two midfielders, Osorio and Delgado, both talented, above-average MLS players. Kind of, in my mind, they're similar level to Roldan for mm-hmm. Seattle. I think they're about that same speed. And then you have Richie Larea, who has been a huge addition to this team. I mean, he's been on the team the whole season, but he really burst onto the yep. scene later on in the year, both with Canada against the United States and with Toronto coming in, playing a super sub role for them in this postseason. So they have, they have talent, essentially what I'm trying to say is at a number of different positions. Yeah, a, a player or two adding to this group could go a long way for them. It could go a long way to having them genuinely be a, a contender in the East, a consistent contender from, last, from this season to next mm-hmm. season. But Toronto, I think fans should still be feeling encouraged about this result. They really weren't expected to get here. Yeah, honestly, true. genuinely, they were not expected to come uh, they to can beat Atlanta. They can unear muff then. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now, now we're getting to rosy topics for <laughs> Toronto. But I mean, ultimately, I think Vanny would agree with this. It's a mm-hmm. successful season for them. He's proud of how his team played, how they conducted themselves, going on the road, playing in two of the hardest road environments. Three, sure. NYCFC playing in a baseball stadium, City Field, going to Atlanta playing at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, big crowd coming to Seattle. Yeah. Coming to Seattle, these are tough games. And so the fact that they made it as far as they did without Josie Altidore, I think that bodes well for them next mm-hmm. season. So Toronto made it here, Seattle made it here, you made it here. This is uh, your first MLS Cup. Uh, on a personal note, any, any like, favorite moments? How, how was the experience overall for you? The experience was, honestly, it was great. It was such a blast coming out here and getting to watch this game. Sure, that's mm-hmm. part of it. The soccer is the most fun part, yeah. for me at least, on the, on the regular. But getting to come out here and meet a lot of the different people mm-hmm. from around the American soccer like kind of media landscape getting to meet you for the first time yeah, was um, that nice. was great it, it was <laughs> a lovely moment getting to, to connect on Friday night I should I should say I got uh, to like the uh, the press mixer later than Joe did and I showed up to Joe just like already you know holding court hanging out with all like all of the people that I would have wanted to hang out with I was like all right he's, he's already off to a flying start he's good to go and that's sort of a credit uh, Taylor's selling himself short a bit here I think he introduced me to four or five six people who I might not have been bold enough to go up and <laughs> talk with but you know it really does speak to kind of the, the community around mm-hmm. soccer obviously totally. there's that from a fan perspective there's that from different clubs around the country but seeing a media landscape that's opening and welcome to to people like myself and to other people who come to these events that maybe don't travel all the time but they get to come in and, and really experience these games it, it feels almost like a big family everybody's got their own jobs right everybody's doing different mm-hmm. things it's still a competitive industry yeah. But it's a lot of nice guys coming yep. who want to see soccer grow, and that's encouraging. Uh, one, one, one moment that I genuinely, like, it made me smile big uh, was Joe asking uh, questions in the press conference and saying uh, Joe Lowry of the Total Soccer Show, which I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. Um, and I should say, it is the off season now, but you've got the 2020 season right around the corner. Joe, are you going to be gearing up for your own podcast? What, what are going to be, like, the off season workouts to make sure you're in podcast form come the next season? So first is addiction drill. Um, <laughs> then we're going to work on breathing. I think you said addiction drill. No, like, not addiction. <laughs> Addiction and clarity of speaking, no. Um, what Taylor's getting at, and thank you for the plug there, of for the opportunity for me to plug, is I will be starting my own MLS podcast uh, yeah, right around will. during this offseason, right you know, before next season truly gets underway. The goal of that podcast, you know, in, in partnership and under the, sort of the Total Soccer Show umbrella, Daryl and Taylor have been super generous with their time and their resources and their knowledge working with me to sort of start this thing it's up. It's mostly Daryl's knowledge, but thank you. <laughs> Credit to Daryl <laughs> on that one. The podcast is going to be uh, me and a co-host looking at a lot of the action from MLS, a lot of the you know, roster building, 
on-field things as well. We're going to look at the league and really try to dig deep and give what insight we can mm-hmm. um, into what's happening both from a roster construction standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, all these things I think are things that, that the podcast is going to try to hit at. I mean, I'm excited. I think, mm-hmm. first of all, it'll be my first chance to sort of delve into that area of media. And so I think it's going to be really fun, first yeah. of all. It's going to be work. It's going to be things that I'm learning, and it's, it's going to start slower than it hopefully it will end up a year from now or whenever it is. But I'm really looking forward to it. I think it will fill sort of a gap that MLS you know, media coverage doesn't necessarily have right mm-hmm. now. I think... Well, definitely, the goal of it is at least to, to provide quality content that gives people a better understanding of how soccer works and mm-hmm. how Major League Soccer works on the field and off. So I'm stoked. I'm really excited. I'm grateful not only to Taylor and Daryl for allowing me to come out to this event because I did, as he mentioned, I came out here with Total Soccer Show, getting the chance to come out and experience this environment, all of those things. So I'm grateful for that and for their help already. And I, <laughs> I know they're going to have lots of things to, to come alongside me with as I make mistakes and as we sort of get this going. But definitely grateful to you two yeah. guys uh, it's been, for sure. It's been wonderful. It's been nice to get to know you. We should add uh, Daryl Grove is not here, but all is good. It was basically uh, between uh, his travel to Boston, our trip to Germany, he's going to England, I believe, at the end of the month. So it was sort of, he did the math and was like, essentially, I'll, I will be around he was saying this i'll be around my wife for like three nights if i go to seattle so that probably won't fly over so well so that's why daryl is here but uh he is in good health he coached our soccer team today uh and he i think was uh excited for us to put out the show so we should probably uh call it here so we can get it out so he can listen and then critique uh, i'm hoping gently uh but joe it's been really really nice to hang out with you watching the game with you was really really fun and getting all of your tactical insights and then stealing them for myself i enjoyed that as well uh but yeah any any final thoughts before before we call it quits for the evening? No, I think you summed it up well. This was a, a great experience coming out to MLS Cup. Um, enjoyable game of soccer, a little bit odd at times, but getting the chance to watch this game with you as well with another person, another mind is great. <laughs> and spending time yeah, right? with you and a lot of the other people here has been just a real blessing, and it's been a, it's been a great experience. Yeah, we are. Well, so congratulations to the Sounders. Congratulations to Sounders fan and front office and the city of Seattle as a whole. It's been a wonderful weekend. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me about uh, MLS Cup today, this evening, I should say. Right back at you, man. I, it's, it's hard to find people you know, out in Phoenix who want to talk MLS. So coming out here to Seattle has been uh, a great time, and I'm thankful for you as well. There we are. And listeners, uh, it'll be a bit of a curveball. It's me and Joe tonight. It will be Daryl and Ryan Bailey tomorrow with the weekend review. Then I think Daryl and I will be back in studio uh, maybe sometime this week, probably early this week, to do some uh, listener question shows and things like that. But until then, uh, that is all for me. We were signing off from Century Link Park here in Seattle, Washington. Uh, hope you have a great rest of the evening and enjoy your week to come.